Okay. Well, let's get into the Bible. We are in Matthew chapter 9. Open up there. Continuing through our study of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 9. We'll be looking at the first eight verses. The title of this message is On the Mat. On the Mat. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men then brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your holy word this morning, your word that is living and active, inerrant, true, all that it teaches and asserts. We, we thank you for it. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you do in us as we listen to and read, um, discover together, and submit ourselves to your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Do a wonderful work in us this morning. Would you encourage our hearts and restore unto us the joy of thy salvation? Would you remind us that the power of sin has been broken and that we can walk in real freedom? Would those who have come into this building this morning looking for free, uh, forgiveness find it Christ in you, the only one who is able to forgive? Help me now, please, Lord, to teach and preach in a way that brings you honor and glory, is faithful to the Bible and helpful to this church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, you see there in verse 1 that Jesus has come back to this side of the Galilee. Last week, we saw Jesus go to the other side of the Galilee with his disciples. Now he's returned to Capernaum, which is on the northwest shore, which was sort of his home base, born in Nazareth, of course, but he made his home base and his base for ministry in Capernaum. So he went to the other side. He's now returned. And we spent some time last week talking about the other side. Remember when they arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, there was a lot going on there. There was darkness there. There was unchecked and unbridled evil. There was all sorts of unclean things there. There was surprising violence in that place. It was a place that smelt like death. And there was a place to which access had been cut off in the midst of all that turmoil. And we talked about the fact that we all have in our own lives other sides. We all have these distant, dark shores that are places of darkness in our lives. Places where we perhaps have allowed evil to go unchecked. Places that smell like death. 
secret violence, areas which we've cut off access to. We all have these other sides. And as we saw on the other side of the Galilee last week in the text, the other side can be a confusing and conflicting place. Those people on the other side weren't able to discern their own best interests. You'll remember that they sent Jesus away. And those other sides of our lives can be confusing places. Proverbs told us that life was kind of like that when it said, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Secret dark places where we misunderstand or misread our own best interests. And places where we even have sent Jesus away time and time again from the other side. And we've been ruminating on that this week, trying to identify our own other sides. And, and, and what, the language that we used last week was, what, what, what if we invited Jesus into the other side? Because the love of God compels Christ to want to go to those dark spaces in our lives And we don't want to be like those on the east side of the Galilee who sent Jesus away, but rather, what would it look like if we invited Jesus into those dark places? This week, I was uh, on a backpacking trip with my son in the eastern Sierra. He's been working all week, uh, all summer long, excuse me, 40-hour weeks, and then he had this week off, and he started school next week. So he's like, Dad, I want to get out and do something. So we went on a backpacking trip in the Eastern Sierra uh, together. And just a beautiful place, incredible area. The trail was a 20-mile loop. It climbed from 8,000 feet to 12,000 feet. There's a glacier there, and then all these lakes that come out of the glacier, and they're like this emerald green color. And there's these streams up there, and we were catching little brookie trout, little brook trout and golden trout, and just camped in this incredible meadow at 11,000 feet. It's just an unbelievable experience. And I found myself at one point walking on this trail with my son and, you know, every reason in the world to just be super stoked and praising the Lord and thinking about good things. And I found myself thinking on some really horrible thoughts. Some really dark stuff. I'll tell you what it was. No, I won't. (laughs) But you've got your own, don't you? And you know when you have those thoughts where you're like, wait, 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 where is this coming from? Why am I thinking on these things that smell like death when I'm supposed to be alive in Christ? What are these unclean things that I'm harboring on the other side? What are these secret places that I've cut off access to? And I, I found these things in my mind. And I felt like I, I had this new language from last, week te- last week's text rather than just being like, oh, that's bad, I shouldn't do it. To be able to say, Jesus, this place that's in here right now that smells like death and is dark and I've, I've cut you and others off from it and it's unclean. Jesus, I invite you onto that dark shore. Come, I want you here. I want your presence in this place. Come and do a work of healing and renewal and restoration in this place. Inviting Jesus where maybe we've previously pushed his presence out. This week in the text, there's a different side to that coin. This week in the text, we find a group of men who are doing everything they can to get in the presence of Jesus. What a change from the other side of the Galilee where they sent him away. Now this group of men are doing everything they can to get in his presence. And they discover that when they get in the presence of Jesus, they get more than they bargained for. So 
it says in verse 2 of our text, some men brought him, a paralyzed man, lying on a mat. So they bring this man to Jesus. And Matthew's account is pretty truncated and short. Luke and Mark give us some other details. Here's what's going on. Just a few days before, Jesus has arrived back in Capernaum. And now he's preaching in a home. We're not told whose home it is, but he's in this home and he's preaching. And we're told that the crowds were immense. That in the house, it was standing room only. Everybody wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. And in fact, the crowds were pouring out the door, we're told, in Mark and Luke. So you couldn't even get near the door of the house. People had come, Mark and Luke tell us, from every village in the Galilee. Some had come from Judea, which is several dozen miles down through the desert. Some had even come from Jerusalem. And then we're also told that there were those in the crowds who, if we're telling the story, are the antagonists. We see them often in the Gospels as those who were opposed to Jesus, the religious leaders of the day. We're told that the Pharisees, some of them, and the the, uh, scribes, excuse me, the teachers of the law, they're called here, were also part of the crowd. And we're also told by Luke that the presence, the power of God was present to heal in Jesus. So he's preaching and he's healing people and he's holding court, so to speak, in this home and it's standing room only and everyone's crowded in and the antagonists, the spies, so to speak, are there watching in on this and all of a sudden, dust begins to fall from the ceiling. And there's a shaking that comes from the ceiling. And you know, I don't know, it's 2,000 years ago. It's probably just like wood and thatch stuff and mud and junk. And so there's like dust, I imagine, coming down and a rumbling. And everyone's looking up and they're like, whoa, what is this? And then all of a sudden, light pops through. And the tiles or whatever there is are torn back. And these guys lower this guy, I assume by a rope on a mat, down in front of the feet of Jesus. Can you imagine that scene? You're like, what is happening here? And here is the man on the mat. His friends tore off the roof to get him there. And now he's in the presence of Jesus. And it says in the second part of verse two, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it seems to me that Jesus doesn't understand the real needs at hand. Seems to me that Jesus doesn't understand what the man on the mat needs. He says to him, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And I can imagine the man on the mat and his friends saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Who said anything about sins? Like Jesus, I've got real problems here. I'm the man on the mat. Like, I'm crippled. They're lowering me through a roof. I've got actual problems here. And you've healed other people. We couldn't even get in the door. And now I'm here for a healing after great effort. It seems a little unfair. Jesus doesn't seem under, to understand what the man on the mat needs. Or does he? What if the man on the mat and his friends were surprisingly similar to those that we met on the other side of the Galilee. What if the actual truth is the man on the mat did not understand his own needs, misunderstood his own best interests? Take heart, son. 
your sins are forgiven. Why this and why now? Because Jesus healed a lot of people in the book of Matthew so far. He didn't put that trip on the leper. He didn't put that trip on the centurion's daughter. He didn't put that trip even on Peter's mother-in-law. He just healed them. Why this? Why now? Why does it start with, son, your sins are forgiven? It makes us wonder. It makes us wonder if his condition of being crippled on the mat is somehow caused by sin in his life. Maybe that's what's going on. I'm fairly sure that everyone in the room assumed that, for that was a cultural assumption of the day. People were just like us. Stuff happened in life that was difficult, and they were trying to figure it out and make sense of it. They had a hard time swallowing that bad stuff happens to good people. And so they tried to sort it out by thinking, well, probably bad stuff happens to bad people. We saw this with Job's friends. Remember Job's friends? And all that stuff happened to Job, and his friends were like, Job, you got to be the worst guy in the world. Otherwise, why would this be happening to you? You must have some secret horrible sin. That was a cultural assumption of the day. This guy's crippled. He's on the mat. There must be some sort of sin in his life. They're just trying to make sense of a world that doesn't always make sense. A place of, war, of real pain. Trying, having a hard time coming to grips with the fact that bad stuff happens to good people. How, how can that be the case? They didn't think it was the case. So in John chapter 9, when Jesus comes upon a man who is blind from birth, his disciples take one look at him and say, Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? Their assumption was someone must have sinned. He's blind. Something has been lost here. It must be the result of his own badness they assume. So they ask, you know, since he, if he was blind later on in life, we know it was him. But since he's blind from birth, who sinned? Him or his parents? Was it like womb sin? Little kid in the womb hitting mom? Or did his parents sin? Who sinned? Because we can't accept that good things happen, bad things happen to good people. Must be a bad guy. And Jesus had an interesting response. Jesus said to them, neither. Neither. And then he said something hard to deal with, hard to swallow. He said, this man is blind so that the glory of God might be displayed in him. That's not much easier for us to process. There's a, a lot of mystery in that. There's a lot of mystery in that. What exactly does that mean? But it, it does seem to say that we can't just assume a one-to-one corollary or connection between this man on the mat and his sin. That's what everyone in the room would have assumed, especially when Jesus said that. But elsewhere, Jesus shows us, that's not necessarily the case. It's not always that simple. There's usually something deeper happening in the situation and something deeper happening in the world. But it is also clear that Jesus does see some sort of connection between sin and humanity on the mat. There is some sort of apparent connection between the sin of humanity and humanity's place on the mat. Those of us that are familiar with Scripture understand this, that Scripture seems to say that all suffering, all brokenness, everything that has gone wrong in the world is a result of sin and evil and our participation in it. After all, God didn't create a world of suffering 
and brokenness. But when humanity sinned, in some way, humanity was crippled and pinned to the mat. And that's had an extrapolated effect throughout time. Where now the scriptural perspective seems to be that, yeah, this stuff that has gone wrong in the world and it goes wrong in the world is in some way connected to sin and evil and our participation in it. It's not as simple as a one-to-one sort of corollary. I have a cold. I must have done something bad yesterday. It's not that simple, but there is something deeper at work. We do live in a world that is broken by sin. Now, what Jesus has done thus far in the book of Matthew is he's dealt with people's suffering. So the leper, he touched him and healed him. The, f- the father who is grieved about his servant healed the servant. Peter's mother-in-law healed Peter's mother-in-law. The two men who were demonized on the other side of the Galilee cast the demons out of them. He's been dealing with people suffering directly. Now he's dealing with suffering more deeply. And Jesus is demonstrating at this point in the book of Matthew that he is able to handle the root of suffering. The cause of what is wrong. The source of brokenness in our own lives and in the world that we deal with all the time. Jesus is showing us here that there is a greater sickness. There's a more malicious sort of crippling. Something more powerful has humanity pinned to the mat. And it then reminds us then that we don't always see our problems as clearly as we ought to. We don't always see the greatest need. Many of us are problem solvers. Many of us can't see beyond our circumstances. And we just want to deal with the immediate and the temporal and what's right before us. But we don't always realize our greatest need, that there is some cause behind the symptoms. We hope that because we hope when some sickness happens to us and we have certain symptoms, that we'll find a good doctor who will not just look at the symptoms and provide some sort of topical that will deal with the itch, but who is able to see what's going on below systemically inside that is causing these symptoms that rise to the surface that we're able to see. We want doctors that are able to diagnose that. You know what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is being the great physician. He's seen the symptoms. He saw the leper. He saw the demonized men. He saw the dying servant. He's seen the sickness. He was able to deal with it directly. Now he's going to deal with it systemically. He's being the great physician. It isn't that Jesus was unwilling or reluctant to give this man what he needed. It's that Jesus is willing and eager to deal with our greatest need. So he says to them, I I, I see that you're on the mat. I see that you're crippled. My son, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Now, immediately, there's tension in the room. Because remember I said that Pharisees were there and the teachers of the law were there. They were the religious authorities of the day. And when Jesus said that, their little theological, what are these? Antennas, thank you. Their little theological antennas and radars went up because they understood something we need to understand. In order to deal with humanity's greatest need, there has to be a display, a working of the universe's greatest authority. If humanity's greatest need, if the real ailment is sin, can only be dealt with by the greatest authority. 
So they start to think in their minds, verse 3, the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming because they knew that the greatest authority, the greatest power, the only one who could forgive sin was God himself. People say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, even his opponents knew what he was claiming here and saying that he had authority to forgive sins. That's something only God can do. You know, as humans, we look for forgiveness in a lot of places. As humanity, there's been a lot of supposed sources for forgiveness. But you know, the only one that can forgive sin is God himself. The reason being, all sin is sin against God. We have this mantra in our culture that's contrary to that. We have this mantra that says, it doesn't matter what I do as long as I'm not hurting anybody. Well, they're not hurting anybody. Yeah, but it's, it's morally, it's not, yeah, but as long as they're not hurting anybody, then, then it can't be wrong. But the truth is that all sin is against God. That when sin takes place in any form in the world, God is always the most offended party. For God is the only moral lawgiver in the universe. God has established right from wrong. What is true and what is error. What we ought to do and we ought not to do. God has not done so arbitrarily. God has done so for two reasons primarily. Number one, his holiness. Because God is right, because God is true. And God's holiness is meant to be reflected in the world. And so God set up a way of being through scripture and his truth in the world that's supposed to reflect his holiness. That's part of his, part of his moral law giving. But the other thing that God is concerned about is our flourishing. His holiness and our flourishing. And so he doesn't give us arbitrary rules. He's not like an, an annoyed parent where you tell your kid to do something and they're like, but why? Why? How, why can I? And then you eventually snap and say, because I said so, that's why. Anybody that kind of parent? <laughs> Thankfully, God is not that kind of parent. In a way, it is because he said so, but there's something behind it. There's some real reason there. His holiness and our flourishing. He's like a good father who says no to the young child because he wants the child to flourish and be well and do well and experience beauty and good. So he sets up parameters. And when the parameters are violated, God is always the most offended party. All sin is against God because he gave the parameters. Therefore, since all sin is against God, only God can forgive sin. Nobody else can forgive sin. Only God can do that, right? Because the sin is against him, right? So if I came and, and gave Tony a little sucker punch right there, I, for no reason, when Tony plays guitar in the band, I'm just like, Tony, you hit a wrong chord. Wham! In the kisser. And then Brian, who's sitting behind him, Brian Howe came up to me and said, you know what, Britt? I forgive you for hitting Tony. Tony be like, bro, what do you mean? He hit me. He didn't hit you. It doesn't matter how you feel about it or that you forgive him. He didn't hit you. He hit me. The sin isn't against you. The sin is against me. Only I can forgive him and I don't. I'm going <laughs> to... Right? Stupid, silly, clear as day. If all sin is against God, then only God can forgive sin. We can relate to that. We can understand that. But there's one thing that's hard for us to understand as it pertains to God's forgiveness. And that's this. 
God possesses within himself absolute just righteousness, justice. God is fully just. Now, we can't really relate to that because in no way are we fully just. We are unjust and we work and experience injustice. That's why it's unfair for us to hold stuff over each other's heads because we're all in the same boat. We work injustice and we are unjust. That's why it's okay for us to be like, you know, kind of like sweep stuff under the rug once in a while and just let it go. We're not that concerned about justice. That's why we all appreciate the jolly old grandpa who kind of chuckles and winks and turns a blind eye to it. That's why when we get the ticket, we somehow hope that justice isn't served. Because we're honestly not that into justice. When it's someone else, we're like, what justice? And even in our injustness, we all want judges in our land who execute true justice. You can see what God himself is true justice. Therefore, God cannot be the crooked judge. Therefore, God cannot sweep it under the rug. Therefore, God is not the jolly grandpa who winks and chuckles and lets it slide. God is a moral lawgiver who's absolutely just. And so all of humanity is held to accountability. Therefore, forgiveness is required for humanity. Because God doesn't just let it slide. He doesn't grade on a scale. And there's this deep sickness called sin. And it's worked brokenness in our lives. And it has alienated us from God because it's rebellion against God. And it needs to be forgiven. God is just. He's not going to let it slide on the final day. And there is a final day. Thankfully, God is also merciful. Everybody say merciful. That's a more fun word to say. Merciful. Say it again. God is merciful. He is just. There will be an accounting. But he is also merciful. How does God maintain being fully just while being just as merciful? God bless you, Barbara. How does God maintain being fully just, all sin is accounted for, while being absolutely merciful at the same time? This is where the idea of substitution comes in. Substitutionary atonement. What we see all the way in the garden was that Adam and Eve sinned. And suddenly everything changed for them. Their sin brought brokenness. And now they realized that they were naked and they were ashamed. And what did God do? God made a covering for them out of animal skins so that they could begin to live in a way that God intended. Something else had to die. And so substitution was brought into play. And so God established for Israel a system of substitutionary covering of sins so that they would bring these animals, lambs, sheep, and goats and pigeons and other sorts of things, and they would place their hands on them so as to identify kind of like giving their sin to that animal and then that animal would die instead of them. Because what sin deserves the death penalty? All sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. All sin is punishable by death. God told Adam and Eve that from the very beginning. And so that animal would die as a substitution for them that they might continue to live having their sins covered by that lamb and the blood that came from that lamb. 
That's why when John the Baptist saw Jesus on the Jordan River, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one who becomes for us the substitution, takes the penalty and payment for our sins, that we might be returned to the way God intended us to live in relationship with him, forgiveness and going his way. Jesus is a substitution for us. There has to be a substitution because God is just. There is a substitution because God is merciful. Because God is merciful. And so the Bible calls Jesus the propitiation for our sins. That's a big theological word. I want us all to say it. Propitiation. It helps if you spit a little bit on the second syllable. Ready? Here we go. Propitiation. Everyone in front of you appreciates that. Propitiation is a fancy word that means a simple thing. The sacrifice that satisfies. Jesus was a sacrifice that satisfied the just standard and demands of God so that we might receive the mercy and the grace of God. His demands, his standard, his justice, his wrath being taken on by Christ as a substitution for us and fully satisfied for us. Substitution and propitiation. Look at what Romans says about it. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. Notice those words. God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. How? How's he going to remit? Give me your attention. How is he going to freely make us right in his sight, forgive us sins, without there being some sort of just transaction? Right? He's not, he's not the crooked judge. He's not the happy grandpa. He's not going to sweep it under the rug. He's not grading on a curve. It says, he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. There's a translation of that word, propitiation, it says in the New American Standard. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God. How's that phrase? People are made right with God. I mean, that's the deathbed phrase. That's the foxhole phrase. That's the 11th hour phrase. Brother, are you right with God? How can I be right with God? Here's the answer. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Pause right there. Why shedding his blood? What's What's the thing in scripture about blood? Why is the Old Testament so bloody? Why are all these sacrifices so bloody? Why, why did Jesus have to shed his blood? Well, you understand this. Leviticus 17.11 says that the life is in the blood. You know that. If, if you drain the body, or the blood from your body, you don't live anymore. You know that much science, right? Biology, stuff like that. If the blood is no longer in the body, you no longer live. The life is in the blood. Why is that important? Because the wages of sin, what sin earns you is death. And if that's the debt, then the only thing that could pay for that is life. So the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were symbolic of this life blood, we say, this payment that can make a covering for our sins. That's why Jesus 
died and bled on the cross, giving his life, his very life, to pay the price. So that Peter later wrote about it and said, we have not been redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious, imperishable blood of Jesus. That precious life of Christ he gave for us. Continuing in the middle of verse 25, this sacrifice shows that God was being fair, just, when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, right? Pause right there. Give me your attention again. Sometimes we can look at history, we can look at the world, we can look at our lives and say, God isn't fair. God isn't just. It seems as though God has turned a blind eye. It seems as though God swept it under the rug. It seems as though God is a crooked judge and he's not going to deal with it. It says here, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time, speaking of Christ's substitutionary death upon the cross. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Now that's good news. And the man on the mat from the culture he was in had some understanding, more so than we often do in our Western world, that forgiveness was no small ordeal, that there was a cost to forgiveness, so that what was being said was a really big deal. And again now, the antagonists in the room were uncomfortable with that. Because only God can work these transactions. Only God can forgive sins and provide and pay the ultimate price. And they're thinking that to themselves. And then Jesus knows what they're thinking. A little bit scary for you, huh? Verse 4, knowing their thoughts. That was a joke, but never mind. (laughs) Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man, mark that phrase, very important, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. Jesus did two things there. He knew their thoughts, that they thought this is blasphemy. And he dealt with them by both claiming to be the one who has authority to forgive sins and demonstrating that he's actually that one. Now, the people that were thinking that were the religious leaders of the day. And they had a tremendous understanding of the Old Testament and memorized the Old Testament. So their ears perked up their little theological, what are they called? Antennas went up again when Jesus said, Son of Man. He said to them, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. When he said Son of Man, they knew that Jesus was referring to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days, God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men from every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. These teachers of the law, these Jewish leaders here, they understood that their 
ancient text said that one day one would come who mysteriously was referenced as the Son of Man, who would have all the authority of God himself invested in him, including authority to forgive sins. So it just got super intense for them. They're like starting to get the picture that this, this Jesus guy who just got out of the boat a couple of days ago, he's like claiming to be God on earth, God in the flesh. And Jesus understood that that was a, a hard thing for them to intellectually lay hold of. And so he said, look, I'm, I'll prove it. I just referenced for you, Daniel, but I'll prove it. What's easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Well, it's obvious which one is easier to say. There's no empirical data, really, for your sins are forgiven in the moment. You know, he said your sins are forgiven, and how do, you, how do they test that in the moment? Anyone could say that, right? Your sins are forgiven. Oh. So Jesus says, I've, I've claimed it. Let me now demonstrate it. And he says to the man, get up, pick up your mat, and go home. Demonstrating that he has absolute authority. And it worked. In verse 8, it says, paraphrase here, their minds were blown. (laughs) So it was a powerful revelation of Christ's identity and ministry at a strategic moment as his life unfolded on earth. So later on, the New Testament writers would go on to say things like this in Acts chapter 4. And there is salvation in no one else, speaking of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Timothy would later on write, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. And John, the beloved disciple, would go on to write, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus did something really unacceptable to his audience. He claimed absolute authority and absolute exclusivity to be the way to God through the forgiveness of sins. And that is as controversial in our day as it was then. Now, Jesus demonstrated that by allowing the man to get off of his mat. Listen to me now. I want you to think about the man on the mat for a moment as we finish. Jesus demonstrated that forgiveness had truly happened, that he had the authority to truly forgive by allowing this man to get off the mat. It wasn't what the man was looking for, but he got much, much more than he was looking for. And in a way... I would say him getting off the mat was a small thing compared to forgiveness, right? But it probably wasn't a small thing in his mind. And even in the crowd's mind, even in our mind, as we're reading the story, let's be honest, we'd be slightly disappointed if it said Jesus forgave his sins and then told his buddies, you know what? Raise him back up through the roof. Aren't you going to, like, Fix his legs, raise him up. He's fine, forgiven, he's fine. Take him away now. You're like, no, I get it, I get it, I get it. He is fine in one way. I mean, he's forgiven, that's the bigger issue. That was the greatest need, but maybe you get him off the mat. We're forgiven 
But Jesus also wants to get us off the mat. And most of us in this room are Christians, and we understand that we have been forgiven of the penalty of our sins, but so many times we are submitting ourselves again to the power of sin. And we let sin pin us to the mat. But the scriptures say that Christ's substitutionary death, his propitious sacrifice on the cross, not only paid for the penalty of sin, it also broke the power of sin. So we're a little disappointed when the end of the story for us is, yeah, you're forgiven, but you're still on the mat. You know what? He's going to be on the mat. Just raise him up. So we've got to think about our lives a little bit and say, in what ways am I allowing sin to pin me to the mat when Christ has broken the power of that sin for me? In what ways? Scary question. Because i got a couple in my mind. In what ways does my sin have me crippled? And that isn't God's will for me. I'm forgiven, to be sure. If we confess our sins, God is faithful just and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But sometimes I still submit myself, myself, selves, sometimes, bipolar, <laughs> myself to those things. And I, I, I find the crippling effect. I let it pin me to the mat. Jesus wants to set us free from that too. There is both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And both were dealt with at the cross. And it is a short selling of the gospel to live as though we are powerless in the face of sin and evil. We are not. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. We have been recreated in the image of God. And God's spirit has been placed in us. So there has come into our lives a real power, the same power that said to the man, get up, take up your mat and go home. Where in your life would Jesus say to you today, get up, take up your mat. Don't be pinned by that sin anymore. Stand up, straighten up. You're not crippled anymore. You know, there are some places where we probably just need to repent. Good old-fashioned repentance. Like, part of repentance is, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me for my sins. But the other part of the word is, and I'm now going to forsake my sins. It means to go the other way. It was an old sailing term. If you're sailing on a boat and the guy on the lookout yells, repent! It means turn the boat around and go the other way. Part of repenting is saying, I'm sorry, Jesus, for my sins. Please forgive me. The other part is to say, and I'm going to forsake my sins and go the other way. Part of what we might need is just some good old-fashioned repentance. John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, listen, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't tell me about your place in God. Show me how you can get up off the mat and walk because you're in God. But we also might need real help this morning. Real help, like the power of God in our lives by the working of the Holy Spirit to set us free from some real strongholds, some real bondage. Look, sin is no small thing. If it was a small thing, Jesus wouldn't have bled and died on the cross. There's some real something. It's no small thing. What would it look like to come today and say, God, I'm... The best I know how, I'm trying to forsake this thing. I need help. The love of Christ 
and the power of God are available to the believer today. Maybe you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you now know that he's the only one who can release you from the debt of sin that you've incurred against God. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Please forgive me. And I'm going to forsake my sins and seek to go the other way, which means to follow you. And he'll do that. He's just and he's merciful. He'll forgive you your sins. Most of you have already done that. Many of us are still pinned on the mat, crippled. Maybe what has us crippled is some sin, some error that was against us. And our response has been so ungodly that in our own unforgiveness and bitterness, we find ourselves crippled and walking through this life. That can be forsaken. Maybe what you need this morning is a few friends to rip off the roof and lower you down to the feet of Jesus. That's what the church is. That's what the gathering of the church is. A few friends who all together say, we need to get in the presence of Jesus and experience the power of God according to his word. So there'll be a prayer team up here this morning. They're friends. They'll lower you into the presence of Jesus, so to speak, if you're on that mat and you're just saying, I need help. Everyone around you is a friend. There's no enemies in this place. Maybe you'll just turn to someone and you don't have to tell them what's got you pinned. You don't have to tell them what this crippling sin is. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can just tell Jesus, but there is always a time in all of our lives when we need help from others. And Jesus is the same powerful Jesus. He does it in a word, but interestingly, God so often chooses to work through his people rather than independent of his people. So it may be that there's a miracle of freedom in this room today that God wants to work through you for another. That's part of being the church, praying for each other, holding each other, pushing each other, lowering each other down into the presence of God. And then together saying, Jesus, raise us up off the mat. Help me to walk. Teach me to walk. For the scriptures say, whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Lord, help us to walk in that freedom that you have for us. Thank you for the freedom from the penalty of sin. Thank you, Jesus, for the sacrifice, for your work on the cross and your resurrection from the dead by which we have new life. Thank you also for the new life we have in the power of the Holy Spirit by which we can actually get up and walk in freedom. Holy Spirit, I know in my own life, I'm blind to the mats where I'm pinned. I'm blind to the ways that I'm crippled so often. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you, the teacher of all things, come to us in the kindness of the love of the Father and identify our crippled places, the mats we're laid out on. And you also bring the freedom of Christ to our lives. Do that for us today whom you love. In the name of Jesus, for his glory and for our good. We'd hate for the story to end today that we just were dragged out of here on a mat. We like to walk in the power and the freedom of the Holy Spirit.